all about loving our Bibles, and our series is called Word 511, and that has a meaning. Let me share it with you right now. You can fill this in on your bulletin on the back if you would like. Word 511. We're going to take the month of December and talk about uh, this challenge to have Bible study as a part of our life, but to make it more meaningful and deeper and to grow in new ways beyond however you may have grown to this point. So wherever you're at, uh, to take some new steps in Scripture and with Jesus. And so the challenge means these things. A five stands for five times a week being in the Word of God. The challenge is that throughout this month together that you would make a commitment to be in the Word of God five times a week. And uh, it could be at any you know, size of commitment. You know, it could be a verse or it could be a, a chapter or whatever. But to be in there five times, distinct times. And the first one means to then share with your spouse, if you're married, uh, one of those study times. So to be talking about what God may have put on your heart and what you felt and what he is driving you to do and leading you to do and to have some real human interaction with your loved one that way. And then the last one, so 511, the last one means that if you have children in the home to spend one time a week where you're sharing together as a family and you're interacting about something in God's word together. Now, uh, if you don't have kids at the home, or you know, if your grandparents are empty nesters, if you're single, there's still a lot of ways that the word 511 can work for you. Obviously, the five times a week part works for everybody. And then maybe take the challenge in a different direction to uh, get together with your grandkids once a week uh, or talk to them in some way, interact with them about the Bible uh, and something that you're reading and, and really share. Or maybe with your roommates, uh, you could get together uh, or with a group of friends and just have a time of study together or a time of sharing together. But taking this challenge for the purpose of letting God open our hearts and our minds and work on us through his inspired word. Uh, so I don't know what your reason is that you love the Bible. Maybe, like the kids in our video this morning, you love the Bible because it helps you learn interesting new words. Uh, I mean, that's a great reason to read the Bible. Or maybe it's because you think the Bible will do something for you. There are all kinds of reasons that, that we're told we ought to read the Bible. And where we want to start and end with this series is this one simple idea that all Bible reading is about meeting Jesus. All of the other reasons that you may be given for why you ought to read the Bible will fall short of this one. So people try to use the Bible for their purposes, and they will tell you, well, the Bible gives us the perfect science, and you know, don't trust science, the Bible is the science. Or they'll tell you the Bible study is all about getting your theology down just right and knowing how to combat arguments of unbelievers or backsliders or whatever and they'll tell you that bible study is about uh, memorizing the law of god and how to keep it and there's all of these motivations that people will try to impress on you for why you should read the word of god but there's none greater than this one all of the bible before jesus points to him all of the bible after jesus points back to him and all of the rest of it is him. And so there's no greater reason for reading your Bible than meeting Jesus. And today we're going to talk about that through three words and three scriptures about meeting Jesus. The first one is going to be the word anticipation. And then we're going to talk about the word preparation and the word transformation. And we're going to take a text from scripture for each one of these and just begin to get ourselves as a church into talking about what God has next for you with the word of God. 
Can we pray about that together? And then we'll begin. Father in heaven, thank you for the scriptures that you've given us and for Jesus Christ, who is the perfect translation and interpretation of those scriptures. We pray that in our hearts and our minds and our souls and with all that we are, you would help us to love you by loving Jesus and our neighbors around us as ourselves and so be transformed through your word to true godliness. Not the fake and cheap imitations of it that are used to oppress or to cause shame and guilt, but the true form of godliness that brings freedom, life, hope, and justice in the world. Father, would you do these things and more by your Holy Spirit, and would you so honor this church today that you'd open our hearts and minds and open my mouth to preach according to your will and to say things that you would have your church to hear. We ask all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins, was raised to life as a vindication of his life and his teachings and to prove that there is hope for the life to come and through the Holy Spirit, who's the perfect seal and interpreter of the things we don't know how to pray. Together, we all say, amen. Let's look at a text of Scripture that historically has been read as being all about the anticipation of God coming into the world. And this is a good season for us to read a text like Isaiah 2 because at the beginning of December, everyone is anticipating what comes at the end of the month. Everyone knows that Christmas is coming. And this is the month when people are thinking about what they will do with it and what they will do for it. And there is a classic Christian tradition that goes back centuries in which December is a time when people anticipate the coming of Jesus. It's called the Advent or Adventus, which is Latin for his coming or his arrival. And the reason that people were waiting for the arrival of Jesus is they had hope from these poems given by prophets like this one by Isaiah hundreds and hundreds of years before the Messiah came. So read it again with me and look at what Isaiah says anticipation looks like. Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem this following prophecy. Look at the word saw. It says that he had a vision of the word of God. Isaiah's experience with the word was not just rote memorization. It wasn't just dry reading. He saw a vision for what his life and the world might look like if God was to do the things that God had promised. Maybe this is what we need in our Bible reading. Not just to see words on a page or duties to perform, but to see a vision for the world transformed when people come to God. And in this vision, Isaiah uses the picture of a mountain as the example for what it would be like. He says the mountain of God, the Lord's temple, will be established as the highest of the mountains. It'll be exalted above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And there's a couple of immediate problems with Isaiah's poem. The first one is that it didn't come scientifically and historically true. The mountain of God didn't literally grow bigger than Mount Everest so that all the mountain climbers in the world are like, forget Everest, let's go to Mount Zion and climb that, and set new world records and you know, get up to the peak of the earth. It isn't a scientific prophecy. It disappoints if that's what you think is going to happen, that you know, the Jerusalem mountain is going to grow. And it's not theologically a perfect picture either. 
Because when in the world has there ever been a moment when all the peoples of the earth said, you know what, it was the best thing to do is we all ought to follow God. Let's all, 100% of the world is like, let's get behind God's way. It hasn't happened. It's not happening today. It's not ever going to happen when 100% everybody streams to the mountain of God. So what is it if it isn't this scientific or this theological perfect prediction? It's a vision of what can happen in your life and in many ways in the world at large if people are able to see with God's sight what can happen. And there's two things that the people in this vision say about God. They want to be instructed by him and they want God to bring justice. Look at the first one they say. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways. That means to be instructed in the ways of God. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. And the law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The word law is the famous Hebrew word Torah, which means instruction or teaching. And we often think of it as the five books that open the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy is the proper section of the Bible called the Torah. But this word means God is instructing his people. And in the vision, the people are open to being instructed by God. This is what they anticipate. God, would you show us your ways? God, would you let us be led and taught by you? And the second thing they hope for is that God would be the one who brings justice. So it happens in a powerful way in this vision. Uh, Isaiah says that God would judge between the nations and settle disputes for many peoples. Do you know what it means for God to settle the disputes between peoples? It means that we have let go of our priority and privilege and prerogative to settle the disputes on our own terms. It means that we've opened our hands and said, I won't take this vengeance or make this right by my own wisdom. I'm going to allow God to do it. And so when the people start to allow God to bring justice into the world, the nations in the vision, they take their implements of war and they beat them and they shape them into farming implements. Instead of cutting people down, we're gonna feed people in the name of God. And they take these uh, these weapons, and they turn them to God's purposes because their hearts have already decided we will let God decide. I won't be the decider anymore. And this is what it means to begin being transformed by the anticipation that the word of God could move within you. And they didn't even know this Messiah was gonna be called Jesus yet. They just knew that God was gonna do it. Who is this mountain, right? He's, he's not a literal historical place. He's the person, Jesus, who is the mountain of the Lord, who gives the perfect teaching and the perfect Torah. He's the one the nations flow to. And in him, he becomes the judge who knows what's right and what's wrong to say about each person. So guess what? We don't have to judge anymore. It's not just a command, do not judge. It's a privilege to follow the Lord Jesus in letting go of what we think is the right way to do everything. Wow, free. Now, the people say, come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So there still is recognition for these people in the poem that they have a need to then be transformed and prepare themselves 
for what God is going to do. Let's look at that word preparation. Another great text for anticipating the coming of Jesus comes from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 24. And in this text, Jesus talks about his second coming. You see, there are several comings of Jesus. There's the coming of the baby Jesus into Bethlehem to be born into the world, the incarnation of God. There is the coming of Jesus, awakening in your heart through faith that can happen at any moment. It could be today. It could be in a fresh new way today. It could be tomorrow. You never know when God's about to awaken the coming of Jesus in your heart. And then there is the final coming of Jesus to set things right at the end of the age and look at what he has to say about this. Jesus says, but about that day and that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven or the Son, but only the Father. Now, many people have tried to determine the time when Jesus would come back, and they spend their Bible study looking for the end times. And in some ways, this isn't bad to look for signs in the world of how we should be repenting or where justice needs to be enacted, but it can become this obsessive habit of trying to prove a date and a time. And here Jesus plainly says that that won't work. He has a different end in mind for our Bible study, for what happens when we're in the word of God. And so Jesus says, don't, don't let people tell you studying the word of God is about pinpointing dates and times. That's one of the ways it will be told you should use it, and you shouldn't. So he gives this example, and he looks to the past from one of the great events in the Bible. We probably grew up knowing some stories, like Noah and the ark with all the animals, or David and Goliath that our young friend referenced in the video earlier when he said he's going to kill him. True southern, two syllables out of one right there, right? He's going to kill him. And so we've learned these stories as children, uh, and they were fascinating. How could this happen? What does it mean? What are we supposed to do about it? But as we grow, we learn to read the stories in more nuanced ways and in more mature ways and to tie them together in this large canopy of Scripture that is all leading up to Jesus as its pinnacle. And so Jesus looks backward and he reaches back to this event of Noah, the story that we all know. And he pulls on it, he pulls on that thread to see what will happen down through history if you pull that story out and use it as a preparatory device. So he says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. And when people read that sentence, a lot of times they say, well, how was it in the days of Noah? And they say there was all kinds of sin, and all kinds of sin was grieving the heart of God so much that God had to start all over. So uh, as it will be at the coming of the Son of Man, the world's going to get worse and worse and worse. We'll see more sin, more blatant sin, more flagrant sin, and eventually God's just going to have to wipe it all out with fire because the world will be like it was in the days of Noah. Okay. Now, here's a couple of problems with that. Problem one. Every generation since Jesus thinks they are the worst that sin can get, okay? And then two, Jesus said about his own generation that it was a wicked and adulterous generation. Jesus makes the claim that his is the sinful generation. And so we don't really gain much ground. It doesn't prepare us and it doesn't transform us to just say, woe is us, woe is us, the world is going to hell. It doesn't change anybody. And it probably isn't what Jesus meant. 
Instead, he explains what he meant about the days of Noah. What was it like in the days of Noah? Well, he says very plainly, the people were eating and drinking. It's everyday life. It was business as usual in the days of Noah. People were going about marrying and being given in marriage. It was everyday, usual, normal life. People were just blind to the fact that everything could change in a moment because they were so involved in the normal and in the usual and in the everyday. And Jesus says, just like that, you and I get sucked into the normality of life where we think that there's never any difference, there's never any flavor, it's just go back to work on Monday and go home and watch football on Friday. And he's like, in the days of Noah, they were surprised. They knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and it took them away. And he says, this is how it'll be at the coming of the Son of Man. People will get stuck in the routine. So much so that uh, two men will be in a field and one will be taken and the other left because one of them had been secretly anticipating the coming of the kingdom of God, preparing his heart, learning and changing and being transformed by his anticipation, being shaped by the word of God so that to him it's not a surprise that the bus is about to depart. And yet the other guy is going about business as normal and they're both at work, they both look like they're running through a normal weekday, but one of them secretly on the inside is aware of what God is doing. Two women will be grinding with the hand mill. One will be taken and the other left. Because one of them has the kingdom of God growing inside through awareness and preparation and anticipation because the way she's learned to read the Bible is to look forward to the vision of the mountain of God that is Jesus Christ. And the other one just thinks it's Tuesday. So Jesus gives his first of his two concluding statements here. He says, so therefore keep watch because you don't know the day your Lord will come. And then he gives uh, this little parable. And he says, so understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and he would not have let his house be broken into. So duh, you know, like if the guy knew when the robber was coming, he would have called the cops, 911, he'd be ready. Or his ring video doorbell would catch the guy, right? And we have all these, we've come up with all these ways now to protect ourselves against the anxiety of somebody taking what we have. We have alarm systems and we have 911 systems and we have the ring video doorbell and we have all kinds of things that we do to make sure that nobody takes something from us and we end up with less than everybody else. And then we stress and we're anxious like John said, about whether we're getting the most out of Black Friday and whether we're going to give the best Christmas and whether everybody will have the most memorable time and we just stress and stress and stress ourselves so that, again, we're just being caught up in the cycle of normal. And Jesus just says, take a breath. You must be ready. The Son of Man will come in an hour when you don't expect him. So learn to prepare and learn to be transformed in slow ways by what God is doing when you encounter the word of God and he shows you a path of transformation. He says, I have something for you, something I'm calling you to. Be ready. And then Paul, one of the great thinkers of Christianity, he shows us transformation in this little text. He shows it in many places. But in this one great little text, he gives a summary of what it's like to be transformed through the anticipation that Jesus is coming. He says, do this and understand the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because your salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Understand the time. 
What time is it? And everyone in our culture says, we know what time it is. It is time to get the shopping done. And everyone says, we know what time it is. It's time to send the Christmas cards out. Get the perfect photo. And people say, I know what time it is because I'm always late. And I can never get it all done. And there's more pressure and more work to do. And nobody's ever content with, with what I've done. And I have an ulcer now. It's time to take an antacid. People have all kinds of times. And Jesus is asking here, through Paul's writing, a bigger and broader and deeper what time is it question. As in, what does God have for you? Maybe you recognize the kind of moments like Paul describes here in this wake up, it's daytime explanation. You might have your alarm set for 5.30 and you wake up and you're just hoping and praying because it's still dark out that it's 3.30. You're like, God, before I look at my phone, let it be 3.30. In Jesus' name, amen. You're like, because then I can go back to sleep for two hours and it's not, and you look at your phone and it's 5.29 and you're like, you really let me down. And you're like, you know, it is time. And so you go, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to close the blinds I'm going to set my alarm back 30 minutes and I'm going to pretend that it's not daytime yet. I'm going to pretend that I have 30 more minutes. We've all been there, haven't we? We run into the office and we're like, man, the traffic was bad today. And it's like, but you do have a Starbucks, so you had time to do that. And it's like, you've lived here for 15 years now and you haven't figured out the traffic yet. You know, like the way that it's been for 15 years was a surprise to you this morning. And so we're just like, the night is nearly over. No! And in a spiritual place in your heart, there is a time, Paul's saying, there's a time to wake up. And it's now and it's happening. And we can put as many blinds over it as we want. We can close our eyes and put on a sleep mask as long as we want. We can set the alarm back as long as we want. But let's put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Just like the people in Isaiah 2 that said, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Paul's like, let's just do it and trust him and let him make the judgments and the instruction and let's experience the peace of his transformation one step at a time. And then he names all of these things that, according to Paul, seem to be nighttime kind of sins, right? Like carousing, it's a great nighttime sin. And drunkenness, sexual immorality, and debauchery. You can probably picture in the first century world all the riffraff coming out onto the streets of Rome as the sun sets and all this stuff begins, right? And all the decent people go home for the night or whatever. But Paul actually gives us a lot more than that. I don't think that dissension and jealousy are handcuffed to the nighttime. They show up all day long. And what does it mean when we're acting jealous of another person? It means that even after all the Bible reading we've been doing, that we are looking at God and saying, I know better than you how to give, give justice in this situation. I should have what they have, and it isn't fair. And to let go of jealousy means to step into the dream and the vision of Isaiah 2 and say, you judge God. Instead of cutting them down, instead of creating more weapons, I am going to turn these feelings and this experience into some kind of a blessing, a plowshare that creates more of an abundance instead of takes it away and pillages and kills. And so Paul says, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and don't think about how to just gratify desires. But let Jesus have a say. 
And here's one of the neat ways that this happens at our church. Uh, our first through fourth grade classes with our children, they give this gift of an adventure Bible. It's a translation that's easier to read and still very faithful to the text of Scripture, and the kids have a chance to really begin to grasp Bible reading through it. They give one to all of the kids there, and you can see here on the one picture we have the table of contents, and on the other picture some of the interactive uh, pictures that they've glued in there and they've taped in there. So there's all of this neat stuff that makes this Bible kind of amped up more. But look at, the, look at the page of the table of contents. These are the stories, the events, and the teachings that they lead the first through fourth graders through during their four-year run in that section of the children's ministry. And they've got all of these great Old Testament moments, but look at what's right in the middle of the page. Most of the content is about Jesus, and everything else is leading to him, and everything else is coming from him because he's the, he's the mountain in the middle of Scripture. He's the pinnacle of history. It all leads to him. It all flows from Jesus Christ. And this is the blessing that's been extended to our children and to readers of the Bible generation after generation down through history is we wait on Jesus to show up. We prepare ourselves to meet him to look like him, to be transformed, to be him in a very real sense. And this is the invitation that God gives to you and to me all of the time. As we pick up the challenge of Word 511 this month, let's follow this Jesus and anticipate what he might do if he became the mountain at the center of our lives. Let's stand and let's sing this final song together. Once I was born, one dream inside.